Well, good afternoon, everyone. Just, just trying to uh, make sure you're all awake. Um, it is great to see you all this afternoon. Um, if you don't know me, my name's Ian. I'm uh, one of the ministers of the church here. It is our habit to um, uh, do regular studies each week rather than random things. And we're, we're just doing some studies in the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. Um, there's only four chapters in the book of Ruth. It is a brilliant short story. And we're today uh, up to talk three of four. So next week will be the last one. And we're in chapter three today. I feel like we're a little bit thin on the ground today. And I wonder whether it's because people knew that we were going to be looking at chapter three today. Because this is one of the craziest chapters, I think, in the whole of the Bible uh, so pray for me. I've got to talk to you about this chapter. I was struggling this week to come up with a title. I thought about sex on the threshing floor. Richard said that that sounded like a Sex pistol song. Um, I, anyway, I, I, you'll see what title I've settled on in a minute. But um, what, one of the phrases that is kind of part of our culture now, it's one of those annoying business phrases, I think, like brainstorming. People talk about thinking outside the box. You've heard of that phrase? Thinking outside of the box. I think this chapter, if I want to get anything across to you today, it is the idea that there are people here who are thinking very, very much outside of the box. And I don't think that's obvious when we first come to this chapter. So we've got some work to do. Um to think that through. Let me start with another clever little short story that I came across this week. Jai lent me a book this week. And uh, in this book, there's a little short story by the Irish author Maeve Binchy. Do you recognize that name? She's written a lot of novels and uh, she's written a few short stories. Imagine the scene. A couple are about to get married, but the groom shows up at his fiancée's house, looking absolutely terrible. All the wedding preparations are finished. Everyone's looking forward to the big day, but he has come round to tell his bride-to-be that he is having second thoughts. I can't do it. I'm too young. It's overwhelming, the responsibility of being married... I just can't go through with it. It's a classic case of cold feet. Remarkably, his fiancée is very calm and thoughtful rather than upset or even angry. And she comes up with what seems like a sensible plan. She says it's a horrible thing for it to look like he is rejecting her. So to save face, she asks if he would be willing to make it look like she's rejecting him. So she says to him, here's the plan. Let's make the wedding go ahead as planned, and I just won't turn up. And you'll be at the front of the church, and it'll look like I've stood you up. And in that way, I'll save face, and it'll look like, yeah, I'm rejecting you. And he's relieved she's taking it so well. He can't do anything but agree to a plan like that, can he? 
So on the big day, he duly stands at the front of the church. All the guests are there. The organ strikes up and the door to the back opens and he's surprised to see his wife beaming at everyone on the arm of her father coming down the aisle. And he can't back out now. She's tricked him into turning up at his own wedding. And the marriage goes ahead. They end up not talking about what happened until their honeymoon. The upshot was that this woman knew him better than than he knew himself. She knew that he was a good man. He was anxious. He loved her really. What he needed was a gentle nudge or a dramatic nudge in the right direction. I'm telling you that story because I think that's the way people read chapter 3 of the book of Ruth. This too seems to be a story of a good man who's a bit slow. He's a bit dim and he's shocked into acting not by one woman but by two scheming women his bride-to-be and his (laughs) mother-in-law. They're both on his case. And somehow they shock him into doing what he really wanted to do but was too dim or slow to do. My main point today is this. There's so much more going on in this chapter than you might think at first. I think it's clouded for us partly because it's so far away from us culturally. This is a thousand years BC. We don't live in an agricultural culture. This is a million miles from Rotherham in 2017. So that clouds it for us a little bit. We'll try and understand that. But I think the anticipation of sex on the threshing floor is a big distraction when we come to think about this chapter. I think the narrator deliberately writes this chapter in a way to make us sit up prick up our ears and take notice to draw us in so that he can shock us with something that I think, I hope by the end you'll see, that is profoundly beautiful. This chapter is a glimpse into the private world of three people here who I want to argue today are all thinking outside the box. They are all dreaming of how life should be and could be, rather than being limited by what's in front of them. And I, I, I think my dream today is that however you came in here this afternoon, you would leave here with a bigger vision of what life can be by the grace of God. I hope you'll leave this place with a bigger vision for your own life than you came in with this afternoon. So, let's start. I I haven't got the clicker here. Has someone else got the clicker? It's on the floor. Have a look there. A case of cold... Whoops. There we go. It's quicker than it normally is. Has it got a new battery? (laughs) Um, A case of cold feet. Um, Let's start by exploring my basic question. Is this chapter simply a case of Boaz having cold feet and needing the women to push him along. 
If you've got a Bible, it'd be really great if you could open it up on page 269, Ruth chapter 3, because I'm, we're going to be dipping in and out, and I really want you to get this narrative. If, if you haven't been here for the first two, chapter 1 and chapter 2, let me give you a 30-second recap. In chapter 1, a family of four moved to Moab from Israel, mum and dad, two sons. The two sons marry Moabite girls, and then all the men in the family tragically die leaving the mother, Naomi, and her two daughters-in-law. Naomi decides to come home back to Bethlehem, and one of her daughters-in-law, Ruth, has, a, has what is, you can only describe it as a conversion experience. The other one stays in Moab, and Naomi and Ruth, together as two widows, come back to Bethlehem. They have no man, no prospects in this culture. One of them is too old and the other one's too foreign. So they come back to Bethlehem with no hope, really, for the future. But in chapter 2, we get the sense that romance might blossom for Ruth and a man called Boaz. She goes to work in a field and it just happens to be his field. But the romance goes nowhere. Nothing happens. The first day was amazing. She goes, meets Boaz, and she ends up coming home. You remember the massive sack of grain that he gave her that she could barely carry? She's then worked in Boaz's field for probably six or seven weeks. Every day. And every day she's come home and Naomi's like, was he there? Yep. Did he say anything? Nope. For six weeks. And then the harvest comes to an end. And they're counting down the days. And then the hours. And eventually the harvest is finished. And Boaz has made no move. You know, I don't know, TV show. Is she like sat at home with Naomi wanting to have the where are we conversation? Are we an item? Are we not an item? Are we in? Are we out? Is he interested? Is he not? So we get to chapter 3. And it seems like Naomi has to make things happen. But there's no way in anyone's world that anyone in their right mind would use this chapter for dating advice. It seems like Naomi, the mother-in-law, basically tells Ruth, the daughter-in-law, to go and seduce her old boss, on the threshing floor. She tells Ruth to have a nice soak in the bath and to put her best midnight in Moab perfume on. Put your best clothes on. Go down to the threshing floor. Ruth, he's only ever seen you with your hair tied up in your work clothes in the field. Get down to that threshing floor. But Naomi's advice is also clever and subtle. She she knows that no man is like... Some men are better than others. I have to be careful, I'm a man. But no man is ever likely to be receptive when a woman walks right up to him and drops an emotional train wreck in his lap. Men are not good at coping with that. So Naomi says, Ruth, do not just walk up to him and ask him why he's playing hard to get and then burst into tears. That's not the way this is going to work. 
So it's all very subtle. She's telling Ruth to get in his face and then telling her to start by hiding in the shadows. Must be so hard being a woman. Wait till he's finished work. Wait till he's had something to eat. Wait till he's finished his drink. Chilled out with his mates. Wait till the Monday Night Live Premier League game's finished on Sky Sports and Gary Neville's finished his punditry. And then, keep an eye on where he lies down and wait till he's gone to sleep. And then, like a ninja bride, slide in there and uncover his legs. And lie down next to him. It's not something I would ask either of my daughters to do. Remember, too, there's been a massive famine in Bethlehem. But now the barns of Boaz are full. It's been a bumper harvest. He remembers the recession. But now business is good. He's in profit. The staff are paid. The food is plentiful. Tonight, they're working hard and then celebrating. And Naomi tells Ruth to go and uncover his legs and lie down next to him. Does it make you raise an eyebrow? Or both eyebrows? The language is deliberately ambiguous. We never quite get to know how much of Boaz's lower body Ruth uncovers. Perhaps he wakes up because he's literally got cold feet. But by then, we're all wondering, will he have cold feet when he wakes up in the middle of the night and finds the girl of his dreams at the bottom of his bed? What will Boaz do when he smells midnight in Moab? I have to tell you a couple of other things that I've discovered about this. The threshing floor, we're not in a farming culture, the threshing floor was a man's world. On evenings like this, sometimes prostitutes would come to the threshing floor to sell themselves to the men who are relaxing at the end of the harvest. This is, it even talks about that elsewhere in the Bible. God accuses his own people of being like that. Spending your wages with prostitutes at the threshing floor. Hosea 9 verse 1. This is a, this is a risky venture. For, why does Naomi send Ruth to a place like that? But secondly, don't forget Ruth's nationality here. You know by now that she is not an Israelite. She's a Moabitess. And do you know how the Moabite nation started? Drunken incest. You can read about it in Genesis chapter 19. Abraham's nephew Lot had two daughters. And they had no man. They thought they had no prospects, and so they got their dad drunk two nights running, and first the older daughter and then the younger daughter slept with their dad because they felt that was the only way to preserve their family line. 
The eldest daughter became pregnant and the child born was named Moab. And Ruth is descended from this family. And on this night, she goes to the threshing floor where prostitutes sometimes go, uncovers Boaz's legs and says, I want to be under your covers. I mean, it's like she's fulfilling in her family footsteps. So Boaz wakes up and he's like, who are you? (laughs) Who are you? He can smell the perfume. He can see the silhouette. Who are you? Is this a prostitute? Is this an intruder trying to steal grain at the end of the harvest? I think this is the point where we get the shock of this not being what we think it is. Just look with me at the end of verse 4 and the advice that Naomi gave to Ruth. When Boaz lies down, note the place where he's lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and get this, he will tell you what to do. But when we get to that point, Boaz wakes up, who are you? Ruth throws the script in the bin. She doesn't wait for him to tell her what to do. She basically says to him, I'm Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you, it says here, God and Redeemer, kinsman Redeemer. Boaz, I want to come under your covers, man. That's what she says to him. But the response of Boaz is the key to this whole passage. His response is not to throw the covers off and leap on top of her. His response is one of utter self-control, enormous gratitude, and overwhelming admiration. He basically says, thank God, thank you, you're amazing. In the middle of the night. At the very point where you think that Ruth is being served up on a plate for Boaz to have sex with, his reaction shows that that's not what he's hearing or thinking. Rather than exploiting or taking advantage of Ruth, Boaz is actually here the model of purity and discretion. He even knows that he can't send her out where in midnight in Moab at midnight on a night like this and he says to her, stay here. He's concerned not just about our purity but about our reputation and his safety. He knows something else as well. If you are aiming at the girl, don't forget to court the mother-in-law too. I'm blessed with a great mother-in-law who I've always gotten well with. But Boaz here seems to see something that we haven't seen yet. We will in a minute, I hope. And he responds by sending Ruth home with a gift for Naomi. What's that all about? Six measures of barley. Second 
talk running. She's gone home with a massive sack on her shoulders. Verse 17. Um, then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. There's obviously more than a hint there that what occurs here at midnight on the threshing floor goes way beyond roof and bars. And somehow, what's going on here involves Naomi as well. So here's the mystery of this chapter. It's risky, it's unusual. Naomi is inviting Ruth here. One writer said he's not invited her to cross the line, but he's telling her to dance vigorously on it. (laughs) I like that. She is sailing close to the wind here. But this is one, the more I've thought about this this week, this chapter, you know, this chapter stands with other amazing chapters in the Old Testament. Abraham being asked to sacrifice his son. Moses seeing a bush that was on fire but not burning away. I I, kind of want to put this chapter in the same bracket as those because what happens here between these people is profoundly beautiful. Ruth throws the script in the bin And she here is asking Boaz to do something that seems to be far beyond what even he was expecting. So let me just take a few minutes to just open up what each of these three characters. This is really simple. Number one, I call this a surprising risk. Let's think about the risk Naomi takes. Just just think about these three characters with me. As we begin chapter three, don't forget that Naomi is still in pain. This is a lady, remember, that has lost both her husband and her two sons. Don't don't read this story without at least trying to plumb the depths of what that must have felt like. Chapter 3 begins with her in great sorrow. When she came home back to Bethlehem with Ruth, she was utterly depressed. When her old friends asked her how she was, she said at the end of chapter 1, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune on me. Don't call me Naomi. Her name means pleasant. She said, call me Mara from now on because the Lord has made my life bitter. This is a woman in great pain. And at first, understandably, that is all she can see. Do you remember the beginning of chapter 2? Naomi couldn't even get up. But as chapter 2 goes through, Naomi begins to sit up a little. She begins to see that actually God has not abandoned her. And she's also beginning to see in Ruth that she has someone who loves her so very much. Right at the end, I I don't want to give you too many spoilers, but um, right at the end in chapter 4 and verse 15, 
all the people in the village. This, this is the happy ending. And look, look what the people in the village say about Ruth. Boaz will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. But your do- for your daughter-in-law, Ruth, who loves you, and who is better to you than seven sons. The people in the village know. At the beginning, even Naomi couldn't see it. Isn't it amazing at the end of chapter 1, she comes home and says, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. And Ruth standing next to her. Ruth must have thought, what about me? She doesn't even recognize Ruth. As the story progresses, she begins to, it dawns on her just how much this young woman, Ruth, loves her. So, in her pain, what is remarkable here about Naomi is her desire for Ruth to be happy. Look with me at verse 1. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter... I must find a home for you where you, you will be well provided for. Can you imagine what that felt like for Naomi to say that to Ruth? Ruth is all she's got. Can you sense the pain behind that phrase? My daughter, I must find a home for you. She knows that while they're together, they at least have each other. But think about what this arrangement would be like for Ruth when Naomi dies. A foreign woman in a strange land with no family or history or prospects. There are no men in the family to protect them. When Naomi dies, Ruth is all alone. So despite the fact that Ruth is all at this point that Naomi has, Naomi is basically giving her away. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul spoke about some churches in Macedonia. And he said this, Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. They had nothing, but they gave. Out of her extreme poverty here, Naomi is giving away all that she has. She pours out her life for the sake of Ruth, with no thought for herself. Isn't it amazing? Hey, what? We've, that's only one down. We've got two more to go, so stick with me. The risk Ruth takes. Just think with me for a minute or two about Ruth. You, you now know that she made an unbelievable promise to Naomi in chapter 1. Do you remember? They're on the road back to Bethlehem, and Naomi says, listen, we're going back to Bethlehem. There's nothing for you in Bethlehem. You should go back to Moab. And they're crying their eyes out, and eventually Opus says, go on, I'll, I'll go. And then Ruth looks Naomi in the eye, and she says these words. I'll quote them from chapter 1, verse 16. Naomi Do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I'll die. And there will I be buried. 
may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates me from you. You can see the problem, I hope. Naomi gets up one morning and says, girl, you've got to go and find a husband. Ruth's like, I made a promise to you. Ruth has called God as a witness that she will be devoted to Naomi until death. And now Naomi's sending her off. Naomi wants Ruth to be happy. Ruth's desire is not for herself, but rather that Naomi herself would be blessed. So when Ruth goes off script in chapter 3, I want you to see that she is not bumbling along. This is a courageous and resourceful woman who knows exactly what she's doing. There is no doubt that what she says to Boaz is a marriage proposal. I love it when she says to Boaz, spread the corner of your garment over me. There's so much going on here. This, I, I, I learned this week that this was, it's not just in the Bible, this is other ancient cultures had this practice. When a marriage took place, the, the, the picture of it would be that the man was taking the woman under his protection. So this idea of spreading the corn of your garment, it seems unusual to us, but it, 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 that would have been common. And did you know that God himself uses this language to speak about Israel in the Bible? He, he uses the metaphor of Israel being like a bride. And in the prophet Ezekiel, God says to his people, I spread the corner of my garment over you covered your nakedness I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you declares the Lord and you became my there's also an amazing play on words here with the words of Boaz himself do you remember when they met in the field first time and, and Boaz Ruth's like how do you know me and he said I've heard all about what you've done for Naomi and in verse 12 of chapter 2, Boaz says, May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now, you get the picture, Ruth has come under the wings of God. And now she's saying to Boaz, Hey, Boaz, would you consider being the answer to your own prayer? When you said, may the Lord richly reward you, well, she wouldn't have said in chapter 2, but you know what I mean. You know how I've come under God's wings. Would you spread your wings over me too? This is about so much more than sex. Listen, I, I wish I had more time to talk about the sex part of this. We, we do not believe as Christians that sex or sexual desire is dirty or bad. We do believe that sex and sexual desire is beautiful when it's embraced in this kind of relationship. Ruth is asking Boaz here for so much more than sex. She is desiring his faithful Diligent, loving, long-term 
faithful protection. But hey, we need to rattle on. The real surprise here, though, is her use of the phrase kinsman redeemer. We'll look at this more next week. We haven't got time to do it now. But let me just try and briefly explain what's going on here. You can imagine that in this culture there are two things important to an ancient Israelite. One is family and the other is land. You get that, right? The whole culture was based on each family's land and their name carrying on. So in the Old Testament, a lot of the laws in the Old Testament are based on these two things being protected. So, if a man died and he hadn't had children, the laws in the Old Testament provided for the fact that one of his brothers should take the bride on in order for them to have a child so that his name wouldn't die out. If you remember in the Gospels, some people came to Jesus and asked him about this. They tried to trick him by saying some comedy story about seven brothers and they all died without having kids. And Jesus smashes them with his answer and they don't dare him ask him any, any more questions after that. But that, that's what they're asking Jesus, that very law. And the same thing with property. If a family got into difficulty, they could mortgage their land, they could sell their property, but the law made provision that if someone in the extended family had the resources to come, he, he, he could redeem their property that they forfeited so that, that both the name and the pr- property would carry on. You get that? We'll talk about more next week. The great sadness in the book of Ruth is that poor Naomi has lost both her family and her land. Her husband Elimelech has gone, and even if there was a brother who could marry Naomi to carry on the family name, she stopped having periods. Even if there was a brother, which it doesn't look like there is, I want you to get that everything is lost here for Naomi. Elimelech will be consigned to history as a dead branch on this part of Israel's family tree. It's over. Hope has died. There's no chance of this situation being recovered. But I have to tell you, Ruth is one amazing woman. Who could think of a way? For this man's family to carry on and their land to be recovered. She knows the situation. She's made a promise to her mother-in-law. I've come to take protection under the winds of God. And I am not going to be part from you till I die. And Ruth's lying awake at night thinking, what can we do? What can we do? What can we do? I think Ruth knows the law. As it's been explained to her by Naomi. So here's the point of all this. Ruth is not just saying to Boaz here, would you take me on as your wife? She is stretching everything. She is being utterly radical here. She says, you're a kinsman redeemer, mate. You're a relative of Elimelech's. That means you can redeem the land and you could marry me and you and I could have a child and that child legally will be able to carry on Elimelech's line so the family doesn't die out. Boaz, the law says that a relative should help out his family. I know you're not a brother, but you are a relative. Would you marry me? 
she sees something. She is thinking outside the box, big time. This, by the way, is why Boaz can't just say yes when he smells the perfume. This is why Boaz has to say, hold on a minute. He can't just whisper in her ear, yes. Let's get out of business. He can't, can he? She's just made this a legal thing, a public thing. We'll deal with that next week. I don't want to spoil it for you, but it all does end happily with the wedding and there are babies and the whole town celebrating. Maybe I'll give you a sneak preview. You go to chapter four and Naomi takes the child in her arms and the women living in the town. Do you know what they say? Naomi has a son. That is the whole point of this story. She, her hope was gone, dead. She's past menopause. And in chapter four, it says she has a son. There's more even than this. You might have forgotten, I don't know, but don't forget that Ruth has already been married for 10 years and had no children. So here on the threshing floor, she is offering herself to this man as the solution to Naomi's problem when she herself has not conceived a child for 10 years of a marriage. Can you imagine how painful that is for Ruth to open up the prospect, the possibility again, of that being the case with the whole town of Bethlehem watching? This is the boldest faith and the riskiest strategy, and the height of love and devotion to Naomi. You, you can't find words to describe what she's doing here. On this night, in these shadows, on this threshing floor, trembling, Ruth pours out her life for the sake of her dear mother-in-law that she'd made a promise to Hey, we've still got to talk about Boaz. The risk Boaz takes. Now can you see why Boaz reacts like he does? Oh man, we, we'll have to read it. I mean, he's just woken up. He's just woken up in the middle of the night. This woman's at the end of his bed. And in a nanosecond, he gets it. And look what he says in verse, oh man, 10. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger man, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Who gets it in a nanosecond. It takes us a bit longer. We don't live in this culture but as he looks at this foreign Moabitess woman at the end of his bed, he suddenly sees that he has never set eyes on a more noble person in all of his life. He doesn't just agree with her plan. He is filled with admiration for this woman. And what's more, she wants him. You could have gone after all the younger men. 
And she's chosen him. I think there may be some truth in the fact that Boaz didn't pursue Ruth because he thought she was out of his league. He's Israel, she's Moab, he's rich, she's poor, he's old, she's young, certainly younger than him. Maybe he was a bit shy, I don't know. But I can tell you that he's godly. Perhaps he does need a nudge, but not in the way we expect. What Boaz catches here in this moment is not just a marriage proposal, but a radically different future vision that he hadn't even seen. They both knew that at this point, in private, he could back out. The Jewish laws don't apply, really, to the letter of this. He isn't legally obliged to do anything. If he wants out, he's got every possible loophole you could need. The guy in chapter 4, he backs out. Boaz could have backed out right here. That's why this midnight plan's full of genius, because if he backs out, no one will know. But Boaz's heart is fired with a love that goes way beyond the call of duty. And when he sees the rich, noble kindness of Ruth, he knows he's met someone who could be his soulmate. I think this explains why he's overwhelmed. So Naomi pours out her life for Ruth. Ruth here goes off script and pours out her life for Naomi. And Boaz here is willing to part his life for the two of them. That's why he sends a truckload of grain to his mother-in-law because he knows what this is about. The grain is like a down payment on what he's really intending to do which is rescue Naomi's family from oblivion. The Bible in the New Testament talks about relationships being unequally yoked. These two could not be more different. And yet because of what God has done in each of their hearts, they're a perfect match. I hope you can see that there's more to this than meets the eye. This is so not the case of a, of a scheming women nudging a slow man along. This is the story of God so captivating each of their hearts that their vision expands, their selfishness melts away and they have compassion that even goes beyond what the law in its written down form said. Because of God's grace, they can think outside the box. Hey, I've got to try and apply this to our hearts now we've still got time I've got three quick points to close with um, here, here's number one big risks require big hope I, I want to say this you can only take this kind of risk that they all take in this chapter if you are safe under the wings of a big God I was very struck this week reading some comments by an American pastor called John Piper. Let me read to you what he says about this very chapter. One of the reasons I, one of, one of the lessons I learned from Ruth chapter 3 
is that hope helps us dream. Hope helps us to think up ways to do good. Hope helps us to pursue our ventures with virtue and integrity. It is hopelessness that makes people think that they have to lie and steal and seize illicit pleasures for the moment. But hope, based on the confidence that a sovereign God is for us, gives us a thrilling impulse. Listen to this carefully. People who feel like victims don't make plans. As long as Naomi was oppressed, as long as she could only say, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me, she could conceive no strategy for the future. One of the terrible effects of depression is the inability to move forward purposefully and hopefully into the future. What Piper is highlighting is that their ability to think outside the box flows from the hope they had already found in a big God. Because they're trusting God, they can submit to one another. But that isn't a form of weakness. They have hope and courage. They are dreaming big dreams. I don't think anyone can live like this unless they have found security and rest and peace and love and purpose outside of themselves. Listen, people, I think people in our modern society often portray Christianity as weak, old-fashioned, It's just a bit lame. If someone's a Christian, they've got to have some kind of character flaw. It's pathetic. This story here smacks that lie right between the eyes. What happens in this chapter is what our love-starved, broken society actually longs for. And I, I want to say to you, this is why the Christian gospel overcame a brutal Roman empire. Slaves in a brutal culture often won their masters over. Wives in difficult marriages sometimes won their husbands over. Citizens in a ruthless society won the empire over. And none of them did it by fighting. And none of them were timid or weak. These people had the hearts of lions. Constantly thinking outside the box, they overcame exploitation with powerful demonstrations of love from another place. They proved and showed that there's a better way. Some people think that life is all about religion. Keep the rules. There's another group of people who think that's the last thing we need. Life is about enjoying yourself and having no regrets. You won't find it strange to hear that the Bible avoids both of those extremes 
Here, there is a third and a better way. The gospel does not call us to joyless rule-keeping and ticking boxes. But neither does the gospel call us to a kind of anything-goes freedom. The gospel calls us to love one another as God loves us. And love is how the law is fulfilled. And love is how we protect one another from being hurt. And then, I, I wish I had longer, Ruth and Boaz sum this up. One writer describes Boaz as the kind of man who always coloured inside the lines. A Jewish religious man. Ruth seems to me like she doesn't even know where the lines are. Free spirit. Two extremes. The very religious and the almost non-religious. What have they both found? They found reality of being safe under the wings of God, and it liberates them to live a life of radical love. Secondly, very quickly, I think there's an early hint of Jesus here. I I personally find it incredible that 1,000 years before Christ was even born, in the darkest of times, here are three people who point to what the world ought to be like. Two of them are women, That on its own says a lot about what God thinks of women. Not as pawns in a man's world, but as courageous risk-takers for his kingdom. But all these three are in a way prefiguring the Christ who would come into the world with an even bigger vision. The one who would pour out his life for a lost world. The one who would open people's eyes to a love that even death itself couldn't conquer. Naomi, Ruth and Boaz all pour out their lives for each other. And is this not what Jesus does? And does that not reach its pinnacle as he, the Lord of light and glory, willingly dies on a Roman cross like a common criminal Enduring abuse and mockery, truly he pours out his life to save ours. Though he is unimaginably powerful, he does not exploit the vulnerable, but comes alongside and takes our pain and sins on his shoulders and dies bearing the consequences. Lastly, the ultimate protection. I'm not talking about contraception. I know what you're thinking. That's done it, hasn't it? What Ruth does here, listen, is something that we all need to learn from. Ruth has nothing. And she comes in her poverty. And what does she do? She lies at the feet of Boaz and asks him to spread his protection over her. Jesus is greater than Boaz. And this is how it has to be for every one of us. 
The way to come is to find a place at his feet. You can't come to Jesus all cocky. You have to come and find a place at his feet and be humble and ask him, please spread the corner of your garment over me. One writer says, our very lack, our faults, our failures are the qualifications for what grace provides. In the same way that Ruth had to see that her poverty and widowhood were the very things that qualified her to have a redeemer. The thing that qualifies you to come to Jesus is not your strengths. You need to come to him because of your weaknesses and ask him, please, protect me. The reason Boaz could handle Ruth is because he was a relative and he was rich. He was a redeemer. And the reason Jesus can handle you and me is because he's a relative coming down from heaven and taking our human flesh. He's rich and he is the real kinsman redeemer. He didn't pay money to redeem us, but he poured out his life on a cross, taking our place so that we could be forgiven and know the peace of God in our hearts. To be under the protection of Christ, to be safe and secure, provided for, is the very thing that will make you and I free to think outside the box and live a life of radical risk-taking, pouring our life out for others. Amen. Let's pray, shall we? You've been very patient. And uh, our musicians are going to come. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your amazing word. Lord, this is so relevant, so powerful. Father, I really pray that your word would come to our hearts with real power. I pray that you would help us to see something of our great need. And just how rich Jesus is. Father, I pray that you would help us, every single one of us, to come and take a place at his feet. And humbly ask him to spread his wings over us. Father, I pray too that you would help every every person here. Father, what, what a vision there is in this chapter of godly, manly and godly, womanly behavior. Father, I pray for our marriages. I pray for those of us who are single, those of us who are in families. Lord, whoever we are today, I pray that you would give us a big outside-of-the-box vision of what it means to live as a man and a woman in this world. Help us, we pray, by your Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.